Hi, welcome to this episode of Author Eke. I'm Travis Davis, your host. Tell us your story. Hey, everybody, this is Travis Davis again with Author Eke. Today, I have John Hood, who is out of Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm in Dallas, and it's 108 degrees today, so I'm hoping it's not as hot where you're at. Maybe 10 degrees cooler. Oh, see, that's not bad. That's not bad. John is going to introduce himself and talk about his not just one book, multiple books, novels, novelettes, and everything uh, here on Author Ecking. So, John, go ahead and introduce yourself. Talk a little bit about your books, your background, and then we'll just kind of take it from there. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, having me on to talk about books. I always like to talk about books, mine and others. Yes. <laughs> uh, probably mo- the way most, I'm sure, the way most writers begin is that they it, they begin with a love of reading. They, mm-hmm. they have certain authors, certain works that move them in, and inspire them to try their own hand at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is John Hood. My day job is in public policy. I work in, I run a foundation and I write a newspaper column. I used to be on television for, for about 25 years. So I've done a lot of media work and I've written a number of books uh, for commercial publishers. My first one back in 1996 and a series of books on history and economics and wrote a biography of a former governor and did a lot of int- a lot of writing that I found interesting and that I hoped that readers found interesting. Unfortunately, after I think it was my seventh book, Mrs. Hood intervened and she once again complimented <laughs> this particular book, which was a biography, and said that was a very good book. No more books. Okay. Heard <laughs> I that. said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I've got some good ideas. She said, that's right. And you have lots of friends who are writers. You have people who work for you who are writers. Right. So if you come up with new book ideas, great, hand them off to someone else. So this happened around, I don't know, 2015 or so. And I had just taken on this role at the foundation. I was starting to teach at Duke University. I teach a in the public policy school at Duke, mm-hmm. had a lot of things going on. And so she said, no more books. Every so often an idea would come. Again, these are all nonfiction ideas. That was my right. field. I, I was a newspaper reporter. I used to report in Washington on Congress. So I spent a lot of time in the sort of serious nonfiction world. I'd come up with an idea and she would compliment the idea usually and always say no more books. So what happened is I got sick in the early part of 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, this was not COVID. This was something else. And I'm I'm just, I'm not a very good patient. So I was stuck at home for several days. I was kind of bored. And I'd always had this weird idea in the back of my head that was really more of an image. Mm-hmm. And the image was of a young Daniel Boone going up a mountain. His family has just arrived in North Carolina from Pennsylvania. And he's going up in the mountains to hunt. And he encounters a giant monster cat and a winged fairy. Oh, wow. And yeah, that's how I thought about it. And so it was this, just, this is fiction though, right? This is fiction. because you're not, Well, you're I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say it's fiction. You're, you'll have to judge for yourself. But I, I just, it, it really wasn't a book idea for years. It's just sort of a weird idea. And occasionally I would think about maybe a, some way to tie together early American history and folklore and frontier mm-hmm. life with fantasy. Uh-huh. And I always figured I'd come up with the idea and then hand it off to somebody who knows how to write fiction because I'm a nonfiction writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll I'll interview a governor or quote a member of Congress or write about economics or something, but I right. can't write dialogue between two characters. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're bored and stuck at home with a laptop, 
what do you do? Well, I just started writing. So I wrote a story with Daniel Boone on a mm-hmm. mountain with magical creatures and a big bear and uncharacteristically Daniel Boone fires his rifle and misses. So I had a lot of fun and I handed it off the story off to my wife and I went back to bed. Mm -hmm. And sometime later she comes into the bedroom and she looks at me sort of with, with a funny expression on her face and didn't know exactly where this was going. And she basically said, where's chapter two. So now I knew that, Judge Hood had modified her order, and apparently I wasn't allowed to write any more nonfiction books. It took a lot of research and time. I could always write fiction, I guess. And so I proceeded to do a tremendous amount of research, probably the most research I've ever done for a book. That's what that's that's interesting. So (laughs) I interview a lot of you know fiction writers or some nonfiction or whatever, but a lot of fiction writers, and I found that, like myself, I do a tremendous amount of research. Because I want to make it believable. Yes. Right? And my my wife, when I'm doing I'll tell her, I say, hey, this this is a book. And she looks at me and she goes, where do you come up with this crap? You know, like, <laughs> I go, that, you know, I just, I just have a thought and I run that thought off. Well, that's pretty much, I guess, the way all writers do, particularly mm-hmm. when they're chasing a fiction mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. The source of inspiration for writers it's quite varied. You know, you mm-hmm. could talk to writers and some are inspired by other books that they've read. And we're all inspired by authors that we like and books yeah. and stories that we've read. I certainly are. And I'm happy to explain them. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I I like old style adventure fiction, mm-hmm. early science fiction, fantasy fiction. I'm an Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. I'm a J.R.R. Tolkien fan. Okay. I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a Robert Heinlein fan. So I have certain Authors, Frank Herbert, the, the author of the Dune series, is very important right. in my thinking about fiction. So we're all influenced by ideas, but I was trying to come up with something that hadn't really been done before in, in this area of speculative fiction. And I wrote something that I think could have been written by some of these early writers in the sense that I use that sort of style. Mm-hmm. It's entirely you know, rated G. Right, uh, right. It's it's not a kid's book, but it's entirely right. appropriate for the whole family. Right. And it takes on some serious themes that I care a lot about. But first and foremost, it's an adventure tale. I want people to be excited and wonder what's going to happen mm-hmm. next mm-hmm. to the major characters. One of the big challenges that took all this research time was I was I was absolutely determined that the history part of my story, Daniel Boone's a real person, George Washington and other major characters a real yeah. person. Yeah. Later on. Andrew Jackson, a real person. Uh, I wanted Davy Crockett, all these people. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I had the history right. So, for right. example, when I use historical if, characters. If you didn't, I, somebody would and call you out on it. You got it. And also, like, <laughs> like you said earlier, Travis, you want to create that fancy word is verisimilitude. But mm-hmm. it's basically, you want to have it feel like it could be real. Right. This is particularly true when you write fantasy or science fiction. Mm-hmm. Because if it's so ridiculous and things just sort of happen randomly, then it's just a story you tell your nephew on a board after, you know, Saturday afternoon. Exactly. It's not a real story exactly. that, that people could actually buy into. You have to make a leap of faith, obviously, when you're reading a, a work of fantasy or science fiction. Mm-hmm. We have to uh, a little bit of a sort of accept this for the sake of the story kind of assumption. Mm-hmm. But it, if it doesn't all hang together and it doesn't feel like it could be a real world, mm-hmm. then it doesn't work. I mean, whatever people might think of the, the Harry Potter series, the J.K. Rowling series, 
One of the reasons why it is so popular is because he took so much time making it feel like it could be a real thing. Like you could actually turn the corner and find Diagon Alley and find some kids buying their spell books for Hogwarts. That's the sense that she gives. I think all good fiction allows you to immerse yourself in it to such a degree that you can imagine that it really happened or that it's really happening to you. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. Is like if uh, you get an audio book of fiction, right? Close your eyes and try to imagine, you know, how, how much detail goes into writing about a certain scene or a certain part of the book. And if you close your eyes and go, oh, I, I can see them ordering a pizza. I can yeah. see them picking up a drink. And what kind of drink is it? And the interaction between the two. Um, I mean, and all in, in my books, every place is real. Every place in the book is real. Because mm-hmm. I want to be able to, one, you know, people read, oh, like the, there's a place, uh, Eavesdrop Brewery in Manassas, Virginia. And love the place. First time I went there, I loved it. So I put it in my books. Mm-hmm. And the reason I put it in my books is because it's such a relaxing place. And after a, an intense, high-velocity, highly-stressed mission, the team needs to go somewhere and just relax. Mm-hmm. And I want them to relax in the book when they're done. <laughs> and yeah. then I want them to somebody, if they say, oh, you know, uh, I like, oh, this brewery is right down the street or a couple miles away, let's go. And they sit there and there's like three or four people sitting there that match my characters. They're going, oh, that's odd. You know, is, is it the team that's in the book? Probably not, but it's just kind of fiction. Oh, I, I agree entirely. I, I actually, because my book is set, I, I have, let me just back up for a second. My, yeah. my stories, uh, the, the series as a whole is called The Folklore Cycle. Mm-hmm. The first uh, novel is called Mountain Folk. And the second novel is called Forest Folk. So Mountain Folk, which has this picture of Daniel Boone fighting uh, a monster cat with a fairy as as his ally. And then the second novel is called Forest Folk. This is another real life person, a, a Cherokee hero named Junaluska. And he is fighting, he is challenging with his spear, uh, a Cherokee river dragon called uh, an Uktena. And so these are real people. And in fact, the, the locations that those two scenes that are on the cover illustrations, those are specific locations where I've been to. Now, of course, I didn't see like a monstrous right. cat with lightning eyes or a giant dragon. But I think these I knew when I was 18. I think I knew when I was 18. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I'm not going to talk about the time <laughs> I saw the leprechauns. And, and also I wrote, what, what I do here is I, I publish these, these novels as full-length uh-huh. books, of course, with, with Defiance Press. And then between each of the novels, I also insert one or more shorter pieces that are just online free fiction. So I'm building out the world. So I have two novelettes. One one is called The Bard, and it's a mountain folk tale. And then the novelette after Forest Folk is called uh, The Pixie Light, a forest folk tale. So each one of the I try to build out. And these are also historical characters, real-life situations. In the case of the, the mountain of where the... Daniel Boone has the adventure with the cat, and later another character has an adventure, uh, a, a historical character on the same mountain. I actually went to the mountain and ran, tried to run up the hill. I had originally uh, described a skirmish <laughs> during the Revolutionary War. I already, pull, I already pulled the muscle. 
I just, okay. Well, exactly. <laughs> what I found out is that the slope was too steep for the action that I had written. Oh. And so I had to rewrite the action. So if you actually were a fan of the novels and you went to this location, you'd say, Hood didn't get this right because he's got these guys running up the hill. They couldn't run up this hill. Right. So right. I changed the, lang- the, the the description of the action scene mm-hmm. so that it would fit the situation. I went to the Alamo. I'm doing research for the third book, which include, which depicts the Alamo. I love the Alamo. Each of the novels depicts a, a portion of yeah. American history. So the first novel is primarily set during the American Revolution. The second novel is primarily set during the War of 1812 and the the, the Indian removal policies in the 1830s. You're moving sort of, across the continent as the United States grows out and then writing about it. those stories. Yeah. So I, in the first book, most out. of the action is in is is in the 13 colonies, mm-hmm. a little bit in Germany. The second book. You get into Canada, you get into Alabama, okay. you start traveling around. Now, by the third book, I mean I've got action in the South Pacific, I've got action in the in the in the Western United States, New Mexico, and Texas. And in the case of the Alamo, I have a particular long chapter that depicts the Battle of the Alamo with some special stuff that I have going of course. around. And to do that, I wanted, to, again, to make sure I fully understood the geography of it. Not only went to the Alamo today, but also studied a lot of the old maps mm-hmm. um, so that I could depict what I... So I don't change any history. This isn't an alternative history series where, right. you know, Napoleon wins the Napoleonic Wars and that Abraham Lincoln survives his assassination. Those are interesting ideas, but that's not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. My history is entirely consistent with reality. It's just I have alternative speculative sort of fun explanations for why real life history events come out the way they do. For example, in the Revolutionary War, there was a a significant battle uh, uh, called Germantown outside of Philadelphia. This is where General Washington, he had been ejected from Philadelphia, but he he had a pretty brilliant idea for counterattacking the British and Hessian troops outside of Mm -hmm. Philadelphia. It went went awry, though, Mm -hmm. partly probably because his army really wasn't capable of Doing all this complicated maneuver the way George well, Washington. It wasn't a professional army. It wasn't operation. a professional. Even even in 77, not 1777, it still wasn't quite capable of this mm-hmm. kind of maneuver. But Travis, the other thing was a was a natural feature, which is it was very foggy. And because it was so foggy, the the American troops got mixed up. They started shooting at each other. The command and control broke down, and ultimately the Americans had to retreat. Well, I'd do the whole battle historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Difference is that the fog isn't natural. It's right. it's insta- instigated by uh, magical means uh, to ba- to benefit the British. So that's the oh. only thing about the battle that I change. But it's still reinforced. I mean, if you right. don't know much about the Revolutionary War and you finish reading that chapter, yeah. you will remember that it was foggy, yeah. and that's why the, the Americans probably why the Americans lost. Uh, as of today, arousing the army. Uh, there was a guy, uh, Baron von Steuben, who was brought over from the revolutionary, from, I think, Poland or somewhere, and was fighting with uh, Washington. And he created how to march or how to move troops from point A to point B, and it's marching. And the army to this day still ha- has that doctrine of Baron von Steuben, how to march in mass, in, you know, in cadence or move on the battlefield. Um, or to an extent. But yeah, they still teach that. I mean, that's that's how people march. That's from 1774, seven, you know, whatever, 1776, whatever. Yes, and he is, in fact, a character in Mountain Folk. Baron, ah. Baron Bobby is a is a character in Mountain Folk. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> he actually uh, there's a there's one of the main characters is an American general named Peter Muhlenberg, and Muhlenberg actually served under uh, von Steuben later when they uh, are in Virginia. So this is after the Philadelphia the, the campaign in the north, and they're trying to defend against Benedict Arnold coming up into Virginia. And actually, uh, von Steuben and and uh, Peter Muhlenberg, who was the general under him. Uh, are trying to defend what is now Petersburg, Virginia. And I describe that in the book also. Thomas Jefferson's in the book. Alexander Hamilton's in the book. I use a lot of historical oh, characters. Wow. And also another character that I haven't mentioned yet. Uh, she said this, there's a lot of military events in my books, mm -hmm. but I have other kinds of heroes too. And one of them, a real life woman, Cherokee woman named Nanyehi. She mm -hmm. lived during this period. Uh, she was, uh, of course, Champions of her people and their property rights and their freedoms and and so forth, but she did not agree with various Cherokee hotheads who ended up allying with the British, which mm -hmm. was a disaster for the Cherokees. They should oh, never yeah. have done this. She argued against it. So I depict that in the book also. She's a main character in the book. And at the very end of the first novel, I sort of gather all my major characters together. They've never been in the same place during the novel. They've mm -hmm. had different, you know, been in different locations doing different things. But I finally have this gathering president, George Washington, at this point, leaves to go on his fam famous southern tour of the southern states, and he stops off at his home of Mount Vernon, and you find out that this tour was just a ruse to get all these people together at Mount Vernon to have a conference. And Nanya, he is there, and Thomas Jefferson is there, and Alexander Hamilton. Of course, they were in Washington's cabinet. And then some of my mythical or fantasy characters are also there. And at that point, Nanya, he restates, you know, I, I believe that our people have a future together in this new United States, but you've got to respect our rights and they have debates. And, and I don't portray these historical characters as one dimensional. I mean, mm -hmm. they, I have heroes who don't agree with each other, which is that's after all, effective fighting team too. You got it. But also other. it's just well, America, America's right. full of people who agree with some fun founding principles. And these are very patriotic books. I'll have to tell you, but Patriotism does not require that everybody be unanimous. People can have different takes on how yeah. to apply certain principles or you know, what, what certain policies ought to be. And I depict that in the book because yeah. I think that's accurate. If you study American history, how, yeah. how Americans defeated the British in the Revolutionary War and then ultimately stalemated them in the War of 1812 and how the Civil War was won and how, how other military and economic events of America happened, these were people who may have squabbled with each other a lot and right. disagreed about what to do, but found ways to work together and solve problems. For that, the betterment of the, like the country, right? If, Absolutely. Other yes. So I see in the back in the back of you got some art, and that art you told me earlier is actually the cover of your first book that you have an artist that uh, drew it, painted it. That, that's exactly right. I, I, uh, I, I did... I, because I've done a lot of other work and I've employed, I've run media companies mm -hmm. and so forth, I, I have some knowledge that I like to apply to my fiction writing as a project. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the idea of branding things and hiring yes. artists. So I hired an artist to do cover illustrations for my books and some illustrations on my website. And I gave her some dis dis descriptions. For example, if you're watching this, this podcast and you're looking at this image behind me, you see that you've got a young Daniel Boone and he's aiming his rifle at a monstrous cat and there's a fairy. But the other part of the drawing, you see there's a mountain, a sort of strange looking dome-like mountain with the moon over it. 
That's a real place. That's called Pilot Mountain in North Carolina. If people have ever watched the old Andy Griffith show, Pilot Point. All right. Uh, that that is <laughs> they, they flipped it around. So in 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 real life, that is called mm. Pilot Mountain. In on the Andy Griffith show, it is called Mount Pilot. Mount it's a, it's right. a town. So the real life city that Andy Griffith grew up in is is uh, Mount Airy, North Carolina, ah, which yeah. got changed into Mayberry. Ah. But the point is that a lot of my, my some of my fairy characters actually live in a magically secluded village on top of Pilot Mountain. I didn't come up with that entirely on my own. The Cherokees had legends about Pilot Mountain because it it's it's one of these strange, it's not quite in the Appalachian Mountains yet. Mm -hmm. It's actually a, what's called a monondock. It's like a mountain by itself. Mm -hmm. And so it's very strange. It just sort of rises out of the rolling hill. Suddenly there's this weird mountain. The Cherokees used it as a landmark. Other Indians used it as a landmark. Early American settles, settlers did, and they called it Pilot Mountain. And there were legends about strange things that happened on this strange mountain and strange little people in Cherokee folklore. So I started drawing. This is what, why some of the research took so long is I didn't even invent that many magical creatures. I actually borrowed them from traditional folklore. Folklore. Um, wrote them in a book in a fictional way that represented or true and yes. working with some true characters. Yeah, the imagine, characters. yeah, I, I said, you know, see, the Germans had tales of various kinds of monsters and people and the English do and the Cherokee. If you ever get to Germany and there's a place that's called Sauberwald. Uh-huh. You go, it's, it's, uh, it's down by uh, uh, British Garden, uh, that area. And you go in there and you swear you're in a fantasy movie where there's dwarfs everywhere or there's, you know, a butterfly. I mean, it's just amazing places, moss over everything. It's oh, just so neat. So it's called Salberbog. Very cool place. Oh, absolutely. There, there's so many wonderful. And, and mm -hmm. almost every culture on earth has legends of little people. There are exceptions, which I actually play with in my books, too. But almost mm -hmm. all almost all cultures from Japan and China to Africa to Europe to, to North and South America, uh, the Oceania, you know, island mm -hmm. nations, they often – and these are probably because there were uh, diminutive people or, or people who had dwarfism or other kinds of – like just like their legends of giants because occasionally human beings will – have giantism as a as a the giants of Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so so almost all cultures have these have these and, and many of them are very similar that they're sort of two to three feet tall and they can be invisible or not invisible and they have they can be mischievous, they can be evil or good. Um they they sort of there's also legends. If you think about the legend of Rip Van Winkle, which of course mm -hmm. Washington Irving wrote about and Washington Irving is a character in my books actually. Um uh, Rick Van Winkle is an example that is not just limited to that story where there's this notion that in if you go into the little people's realm, that time passes more slowly. So you might fall asleep and wake up and it's a long time later yeah. as of what happened to Rip Van Winkle. Yeah. I play with that, too. So in my story, there actually is a real time difference. If you go into a one of these fairylands, time is moving much more slowly. And I, that becomes a plot device and how I how I play with these ideas. Now, I've had the same thing when I was a private in the army waiting for payday. That just that <laughs> took forever until I got paid. Yep. Was, you know, it was gone. Then it was quick. Then it was like, boom, gone. It's just that time. 
you know, anticipation of getting a check. So you, uh, what is your most current book you're writing or about release or? Well, the third book in this, the third third novel in the series is called Water Folk. So far, you should be able to tell there's a theme: mountain folk, yes. or by forest folk, desert folk. folk. <laughs> the fourth book will be called Valley Folk, and depicting mm-hmm. the Civil War. So, it, the third book, Water Folk, will be coming out in a few months. That's the one that depicts the Texas War of Independence, the Mexican American War, right. and uh, high, Adventure on the High Seas, which mm-hmm. of course has a water theme to it. Mm-hmm. Among the characters will will be uh, Herman Melville, who wrote uh, Moby Dick, and you you will you will meet the real Moby Dick. There really was a whale that inspired okay. the other, and I place play around a little bit with that and and right. the other sea monsters. Um, and then the, the the series is intended to go all the way through American history. We'll see how it plays out. But that's the third book. What what I decided to do when I got into the fiction business, in part, I did this. For my own edification. I mean, I have thousands of readers, but even if I had a few dozen readers, mm-hmm. I enjoy living in my own world. I of don't know course. if you've ever had this experience, but when I was writing that first novel, Mountain Folk, this would have been in 2020, um, I had this weird, I, I, I like to outline things because I'm primarily a nonfiction writer, so right. I have strict outlines and so forth. So I had the plot of the story figured out. And about two-thirds of the way through, as I was writing that chapter, it was a exciting sort of adventure chapter, I had this sort of odd experience where the characters that I had created sort of figuratively looked up at me from the laptop mm-hmm. and said, no, this, uh-huh. this plot that I had devised didn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And my characters, I couldn't figure out what to write my characters to do what I'd originally assigned them to do. So I had to actually change the plot yeah. on the fly as I was writing that chapter. And I know this sounds ridiculous. Maybe it does. I know yeah. you're a writer too. I actually got kind of excited. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I was writing the chapter kind of on the edge of my seat. What's yeah, going to happen to my characters? You know, I do the same. I, I have an idea and I like, uh, I like to exercise in the morning, go out and walk, come back and write. Yes. Um, and I'll start writing. Oh, you know, you know, put it here, take them here. It goes to the oh, I'm thinking of something now because I don't outline really. I just go ahead and just write. So now, okay, how can I put something else in there because I want to throw the reader off a little bit, right? I don't want the saying, oh, I know this is going to happen. Okay, this, yes. I don't want that to be. I want to be. Oh, okay, this is going to happen. Oh, that'd be cool. Either something's happened to me like that, or I know somebody, or it's just a figment of my imagination. But then weave it into the even weave it into the story, or even have a preconceived uh, ending, and then you, like you said, you get there and you go, that doesn't work. Yeah, I, it got, didn't work. I, have, I have to rethink that, right? And then you you you're right. Your characters actually subliminally help you figure it out, even though you're the one who created the characters. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it, it makes no now sense. you understand when I when I t- yeah. explain this to people who've never tried to create fictional world and characters, they think it's kind of silly, but it's true that once you build your characters, they kind of exist, at least in your mind, and they have certain like traits, yes. and certain con- tendency. And, and if you try to make them say something they wouldn't say or do something they wouldn't do. It, it's unnatural. It's unnatural and it doesn't work. And that's sort of the feedback loop that you get. So anyway, I enjoyed the process, but I also wanted to involve potential readers in the process from the beginning. So I announced, I started building a list, an email list, people that I knew, people who had read other books of mine or people who followed my my newspaper column and that sort of thing. 
And I just started communicating with them. I'm in the process of writing this book. And I even polled readers about certain things. For example, I had four artists on the hook and I had Mm -hmm. samples of four different artists. And when I built out my email list and my social media Mm -hmm. feeds for the series, I had a poll and I asked readers, which of the four artists you Mm -hmm. like best? And I had a tie. Mm -hmm. So I had hundreds of of votes. Two of the artists were precisely tied. And this was right around the 2020 election, which is kind of fun because I I write about elections. So I was involved in that. So I said, we're going to have to have a runoff. So we had a runoff between the two top voting uh, artists. And this is the artist that won, which I'm glad she does a great job. That's great work. So I tried to do that in part to build some interest and capture some email addresses and things like that. Yeah. And then I started after I wrote the, the the manuscript and started shopping it, started building out a website. So when you go to my website, which is folklorecycle.com, mm-hmm. you find information about the books themselves, but you also find out backgrounds to the historical characters, mm-hmm. like biographical sketches. I have a map. I have uh, character descriptions. I have images of characters. I, I, dev- I designed uh, miniatures of all the major characters. I didn't make all these, but I have right, right. online designs for them. So you can actually look at them. Sometimes readers will send me an email and say, you know, I never, I, I have a particular uh, character in the second book mm-hmm. that you may have heard of named Ichabod Crane. Oh, yeah. Ichabod Crane was a real person. People mm-hmm. think he was made up and he was the, the version that's in the Legend of Sleepy Hollow is completely fictional. But there was a real American military officer named Ichabod Crane that Washington Irving met during the War of 1812. And the name stuck in his head and he used the name later. So I have a lot of fun with that. And anyway, Ichabod Crane, I, I have an image of him riding a horse and doing certain things. And some reader emailed and said, I don't I think he made him too thin. I, I always imagined him with, with a wider <laughs> face. Which is kind of fun. Plump fella. I will tell you, Travis, that the 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 most fun I have had as a fictional author's author is when a, a mother who'd been reading the stories to her children sent me an email. It was very nice and talked about how much they enjoyed it. And then later she sent me these pictures, and it turns out that her two kids had done school projects based on my novel Mountain Folk. And so there was a drawing. And there was a diorama that depicted a major scene, which was literally oh, wow. on, the, on the refrigerator. That's amazing. Now, you know, I don't need anything else. Right. I, I have, at least for two kids, I have created such a rich imaginary world mm-hmm. that they enjoy, that they learned a lot of history from. Right. Also, in like, cared about the characters and were the two love interests going to get mm-hmm. together or not? And who's, you know, there's a there's another love story that doesn't turn out well and they got upset about it. Right. And. The fact that they enjoyed that so much, it had such an impression on them that they chose to make drawings of the characters. I just love that. That's awesome. So, so you're talking about you know email lists and website. So I'm I'm, a, I'm creating a, a website for my team and the books because I want them to have a persona on their own, right? Yeah. I want to go out there and 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 they're more or less their uh, clandestine operators, right? So there's not going to be any pictures of them. It's going to be silhouettes. Ah. But it's going to be like a site where you've got to log in, like classified information to be able to get to the site. And then, and then I want people to say, what mission would you like them to do? And then let me that build a mission. fantastic. Let me build a mission on, on what? And then maybe little novelettes, right? Between major yeah. missions, what are they doing? Yeah. Or something. So 
I love that idea. That, that's exactly the kind of thing we've got to do in part yeah. because. So you talked about branding. It's yeah, branding. I mean, it's very difficult to market books. I, I don't know how much your your uh, audience wants to hear about the technical side of this, but book publishing is 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 was always a kind of a weird business. When I I did my first book for Simon and Schuster, this was in the 1990s. You know, the the industry at that time was was very different than it is today. This is before yes. the internet, or at least before the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And the way you marketed books was through traditional print media, and you did radio and television interviews, and you did personal appearances. And of course, we still do these things. Right. But when the internet broke up lots of industries and changed them, it really broke up the book publishing industry. People assumed that what what happened is people stopped reading, uh, you know, physical books and they all read ebooks. That is not right. true. That is not true. That's correct. Most correct. people still read physical books, but the way that, but of course, audiobooks are a big story, and deep right. digital books are a slice of the pie. But what really changed was the marketing of books. It became yeah. much more of a digital business. And if you don't build a mean, not just a brand, I mean, that's the first part of it, build an experience. So people like you're describing, you've got these clandestine operators Mm -hmm. and you can learn about this or read their dossiers and you could suggest, I'd like to see them, you know, have a mission on the island of Malta and get away with this special. Once you create that kind of immersive experience, then you've got an audience that will want to read stories. There are so many books. While we've been talking, while you and I have been talking, dozens yes. of fantasy <laughs> books, dozens of thrillers and spy books yeah. have been published since we've been talking. Now, right. a lot of them are self-published and maybe uh, don't have that many readers, but maybe not. There's self-publishers that get lots of readers and then lots of commercial publishers also uh, publishing every day. So you're competing with lots of other ways that people can spend their time. They can read other books or they mm-hmm. can watch streaming services or they can do all sorts of other things which is great i I love america and competition and free markets and that sort of thing that's all good right but it means that if you're going to put all your effort into creating a world and you want people to come live in it it's got to be a a fully immersive like real sort of a world that people want to live in at least that's the way i've approached it sounds like you approach it the same way yeah and what i've what i've started doing you know i'm so adverse to get tiktok with my son daddy gotta do tiktok I'm 64 years old. <laughs> TikTok, right? So what I've done, I've got a couple of concepts I'm doing. One, I like to travel, right? Me and my wife like to travel. And I take my books with me and I put them somewhere and say, guess where they are? It's called the traveling books. And the other is when I do like little videos and you know, Instagram or Facebook, I like to go ahead and like barbecuing or cooking or working out, whatever. I never talk about the books, but the books are in there somewhere. Mm. You can be able to see them. Like so Seinfeld, where every episode of Seinfeld mentioned, saw, or talked about a superhero. Yeah. Every episode. Yeah. So that's right. So subliminal kind of marketing, right? Um, I, do, I, I do that. So you, because you're trying to figure and why I did this podcast, I created this podcast. So I started writing my first book in March of 2022. And I finished in April 2022, about eight weeks. And found Defiance Press, rest is history. But during that span of waiting for the book to come out, right, this little you know six month window or whatever, I was like, I don't know anything about writing a book. I don't know anything about marketing a book. I don't know anything about you know that industry or that right that world. 
So I said, I'm going to create a podcast and I'm going to have, interview authors, either established authors, new authors, want to be an author, have an idea, whatever, and bring them and create a platform. So to interview, I don't, re- I don't review books, right? Because I want to talk to the author about how they wrote it, why they wrote it, what are they doing to promote it? And that That's what I, that's me. That's what I'm doing with my podcast. Um, I've done 27 or 28 episodes, you know, uh, but that for me that you have to think of creative ways to market. Like go to the library, see if they have an author on stage, right? Get up there and talk about your book. Uh, you know, the local newspaper, have them do a spotlight uh, on you. Reach out to folks and, you know, because if I had a TV show in the morning, I'd be a bestseller and the book might be crap, right? But I got a TV show. Yeah, people gonna buy your book. I mean, there's so, bottom line in marketing is the story here. There are lots of brilliant yes. books that never never got an audience because they weren't properly marketed or, or oh, yeah. positioned. And there is, as you allude to, there is a lot of garbage yeah. that sells. Now, sometimes it's because human beings, you know, we are who we are, and some mm-hmm. certain kinds of garbage can be appealing to, to human beings. Oh, yes. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny that. But sometimes it's just garbage that was well marketed. And people didn't really know they were going to get this garbage until after they already bought the book. Yeah, right. Now we don't want to. We don't want to sell garbage. We want to sell wonderful right. things, exciting yes. things, provocative things, and entertaining things, mm-hmm. meaningful things. But you can't sell if you don't sell. You know what I mean? You're not going to sell books if you don't sell yourself. That's why you have been, uh, I think, wise to promote not just the books, but you as an author. Who are you? People like to identify with authors mm-hmm. and learn about authors. Uh, so people can visit my YouTube channel for the, the yes. series, again, called Folklore Cycle. Mm-hmm. And there they will see a series of videos that I prepare for each of the books. What I do there is kind of similar to yours, except I go to different locations around the country that are featured in the stories or have some connection to one of the themes of the book. And I record my videos are about three to five minutes long and they're produced. So they have me speaking from a location. Mm-hmm. But I also have images and maps, mm-hmm. and it's sort of the Ken Burns, you know, moving camera right. style, all that. Right. And what I'm trying to do is, again, uh, let people lo- learn a little bit more about, for example, in the first book, I have a video on religious themes, because there are religious themes in, in the first book. Yeah. Uh, there's a major character, Peter Muhlenberg, who does become a general in George Washington's ar- mm-hmm. his, his army, but he was originally a minister. That way he was called to be a minister in Virginia, as a matter of fact, in the Shenandoah Valley. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I tell that story. I have another theme in the book that has to do with books, with the publishing and learning. And so I went to a location that w- would have one of the first libraries in America and talked about that. In the current book that I'm working on now, Waterfolk, I just came back from Boston where I shot some video there. I shot some video in a village in southern Man- Massachusetts called New Bedford which was a big part of the whaling industry. And I did a whole little video about whaling and what it was like. That's cool. I like that. I like that. And, that's, and, and the fact promoting that the book, but not promoting the book. I, I am not promoting <laughs> the book directly. I mentioned the book. Yeah, before. yeah, I'll talk you, about it. Yeah. But the idea is what is whaling? Cause people don't really understand just how bloody and brutal whaling was. I mean, it was a big industry and it was an important oh, yeah. industry. And I depicted in the book, I picked it hunts whales. I just want people to understand that it wasn't, you don't, you don't just like sail by a whale and shoot a harpoon at it and then reel it in. It's way more complicated than you're that. You're not going to cast a hook 
<laughs> no. And, and of course, you didn't kill whales with harpoons. That wasn't the purpose of a harpoon. A harpoon was designed to hook a whale, and then it would yank the whale boat along for a long time. You're basically trying to tire the whale out. So then you could get in close with a with a lance. But my point is, whether it is uh, certain characters that I mm. focus on, certain kinds of characters like uh, like culture heroes mm. or Cherokee heroes or African-American heroes. One of my characters is Sojourner Truth, who mm. was one of the early abolitionists. And I tell her story in the second mm. book. So if I talk about these kinds of characters or themes, I do them as videos. And then people, and I said, go read more at my website. Of course, you can buy my books at my website. Exactly. I have heard some whale tales. So I've heard a lot of those. I've never heard a whale story, you know, or, <laughs> or put it in a video. Yeah. So, so you got, you know, what about Twitter? What about Facebook? What about all, where, where can folks get your stuff? I have, uh, I have a Twitter feed for mm-hmm. the folklore cycle. I have a, um, LinkedIn page and a Facebook mm-hmm. page. And in fact, in those cases, I started with Mountain Folk. So if you search for Mountain Folk, you will find that on Facebook, on Twitter, and LinkedIn. I ended up mm-hmm. not trying to convert them all to Folklore Cycle because they already had a lot of following. Mm-hmm. So I just left them alone. Mm-hmm. So you can look for Mountain Folk on social media or Folklore Cycle and you will find them. But the easiest thing to do, because all the social media feeds are attached to it, mm-hmm. is just go to FolkloreCycle.com. That way you can sign up for the email newsletter, which comes out every month. You can read all the content. Mm-hmm. You can watch the videos at my website. And you can also link to my Facebook, my LinkedIn, my Twitter. Now, I haven't done much with Instagram yet just because I had enough to do already, but I'll probably eventually play with Instagram also. It's uh, it's interesting, right? I mean, again, you got to find the niche. You got It's a lot of... Uh, Finding what works for you and your audience and the yes. demographics of your audience. And there's just a lot of a lot of research. People, you know, I thought I'm just gonna write a book and everybody's gonna buy it. Well, that doesn't happen. Just doesn't people work you know buy that. it. People you know well, buy it. <laughs> one thing that I know about book publishing, but also lots of other work in my yeah. in my day job doing work in, in journalism and public yeah. policy. The most one of the most important things that people overlook, and they really shouldn't, is email. Yes. Get people's email addresses. You know. Social media is wonderful, and it's also horrible in some way, but it can be right. wonderful in many ways, but it does not a substitute for having someone's email address and sending them something directly. Yeah. Once you get somebody on an email list, and of course, you get past the spam blocker and they're yeah. actually reading the, the content. Yeah, there, there's a way to format an email. I have a little bit of a marketing background, yeah. sales and marketing. So the way to format the email, especially in the title, doesn't get caught by spam filters. Exactly. That's so right. There's a, there's a, it's a little art. And and so you want a nice you, you want a nice mm-hmm. email list that you send not every day. You don't want to mm-hmm. annoy people with constantly pestering emails. Right. But if you send them an email once every six months, they'll never see it. So it has to be a little more regularity than that. But mm-hmm. I, I have found email to be an important part of my marketing. And frankly, I use digital advertising. It's not very expensive. Mm-hmm. I do it mostly on Facebook. You can mm-hmm. target appropriately. And so a lot, I would say most of my sales have been driven by digital ads that I target to specific locations. One of the things I decided to do, because again, you're competing with all sorts of other ways oh, yeah. in their time. So I and decided Facebook and all those will take your money. Of course. Regardless if you sell one. Absolutely. Take and you, your money in a you have to be ruthless about this. If you try yeah. an ad for a couple of weeks and you never sell, but just drop it. 
You yeah. just try something else because you've got the ultimate point is not for someone to click on it even. Right. It's for someone to click through and purchase the book. But the yeah. point is, uh, I decided, you know, Virginia in the first book is a big, a lot of the scenes happen in Virginia. Some of them happen mm-hmm. in North Carolina. Some of them happen in Tennessee and South Carolina. So I did ads specific to people in Virginia right. saying there's a fantasy story in Virginia. Do you want to see fan? You, you want to see a sea monster in the York River? You know, mm-hmm. so right. the South Carolina people, I, you know, I said, do you want to see the the Battle of Sullivan's Island in 1776? But there's some magic involved. You know, so mm-hmm. I make specific references to legendary creatures and locations in the ads, not just, hey, I've got a fantasy story for you. I mean, that's that's a document <laughs> that everybody has seen. It's got to be something more interesting, something that hooks people. So I have a, a tagline I use sometimes, which is, is mountain folk. A historical account of the Revolutionary War featuring George Washington and major battles? Mm-hmm. Or is it a story involving dragons and heroes and a and a blade-wielding dwarf queen? And the answer is yes. Yes. The book. That you got yeah. both things happening yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I learn something new. Every every podcast I learn something new. I mean Well, I mean, if we're not learning and being curious. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like if writers don't read, they'll never have readers. Mm-hmm. If you don't yes. love to read, you yep. probably won't be a good writer. And you won't also improve because you won't be reading other people's stuff, other people's work. getting in, inspired by it. And similarly, um, whether it's marketing, or as you know better than I, uh, a military operation, mm-hmm. doesn't it depend in part on the teamwork of people who are themselves quite different? They have different skills. You play to each person's yep. strengths. Yep. And so I think that's true, whether it's uh, learning from each other as authors uh, or learning from each other as marketers, right. which is a lot of what authors do. Is And I'm here to tell you, you know, lots of people may be thinking, well, I'm this only applies if I self-publish. Now, if I got a if I got a big publisher, if I got Simon and Schuster to mm. publish my book, I wouldn't have to worry about it. Let me tell you, that is absolutely false. That's right. Most of the big publishers don't spend very much money marketing their authors either. They have mm-hmm. a few authors that make most of their money and they will throw everything yep. up against the wall. And a lot of it not, doesn't stick. But the ones that stick, then they buy their second, third, fourth book. But they don't actually spend a lot of money on marketing, too. So no matter how many I've written, I guess, 10 books now. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter. I had an academic publisher one time. I had a big commercial publisher. I had a small commercial publisher. doesn't matter. No, authors are still <laughs> primarily yeah. responsible for the marketing of their work. I agree 100%. Well, John, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you today, learning about your books. Give me a, a just so a kind of thing that a, one thing I kind of tell the readers, or, or if you're an author, take one hour a day and do something from a marketing perspective for your book. Absolutely. Take it out of your writing time or whatever, but one hour a day set aside. And I, I, and I only know that because I learned it from another author I had on. Author <laughs> That's, that's a great idea. So that's what I do every day. One hour, right? And I'll think of some crazy stuff to do or whatever, something that that I enjoy doing. Uh, but no, it's been great. So folks, Amazon.com, mm-hmm. John Wood, check out his books. And uh, can't wait for the next one. It'll, it'll, next be, one. it'll be an adventure, I promise. Because we're a big continent, so there's a lot to go through. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and right. a lot of American history. <laughs> yes, a good history. <laughs> yep. It's a bad, but we made it through it. So, you got it. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
questions. Thank you for listening to Author Eke. There'll be another episode next week. Please stop by and start your own story. We can't wait to hear it.